in the Mojave. 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. Today I want to tell you a coyote story called Coyote and the Shadow People. Now, in many coyote stories, most notably those that are set in the mythic time, in the age of myth, which is the time before ours, when reality was being constructed, coyote acts as a transformer as well as a trickster. He goes about, and we know Coyote is always wandering and going there. Well, he goes about setting precedent and establishing practices through his actions that shape our world. Coyote does not have a grand plan for this. He does it as he lives, as opportunities and needs present themselves. Now, it's often said that Coyote makes our world, that he readied the earth for us, for us, the human people, and laid the groundwork for human life and culture. But sometimes he is aware of this responsibility, and sometimes he's not. That's where this willy-nilly quality becomes relevant because his tendency to act in his immediate self-interest can be seen in the world that he gave us for good and for ill. (laughs) Now, in this story, which is a Nez Pierce story, I think you'll get a sense of his mythic powers and the contradictions in his nature. Contradictions that render him recognizable to us in our complex, often flawed, human state of being. I want to start by giving you a little bit of background on the source of this story. And I'm very grateful to Gerald Ramsey, whose research into the story which I found in an article in the Journal of Western American Literature, is my source for this bit of information. This story was recorded and translated into English by Archie Finney in Idaho in 1929. And Finney was a native Nez Pierce who was educated at Columbia University and returned to work with his mother to create an ethnography of his people. His mother was a gifted storyteller whose repertoire extended back three generations. That is well before many of the cross-cultural and intertribal contacts that later influenced these stories. A lot of what we have from other sources was changed, and in a way that's okay, but Finney's translation, which is what I'm going to share with you today, 
gives us a glimpse into um, a story that may be closer to its original tellings than some of the others that we have shared here on this program. As someone who tells stories from other cultures, I am always looking for insight and guidance from the people who carry a particular story about their proper use. I tell them, and we share them here, to broaden our understanding of the human experience and to learn about our own selves and culture. They're valuable tools for unearthing and challenging the assumptions that we've been given about what is real and true and valuable. And I think stories from other cultures can help us then imagine alternatives. So I'm not an expert on Native American mythologies, and I certainly do not live from a Native perspective. But it is out of my respect for their view of the world and my sense of the needs and the poverty even of mainstream Western culture that I turn to stories like this one. Now, regarding the myths of the Nears Pierce, Finney, our translator for today's story, asks that we don't read them mechanically. In fact, he suggests that stories are always better when they're told and not read. But he asks that we don't read them mechanically and instead open our imagination to them as a mythology, as a glimpse into a world view of profundity and beauty, and let ourselves be moved. On a personal note, I feel that I slip into the current of the river of mythic time when I tell you stories like the one I'm going to share today. So I invite you to wade in with me. Sit back and relax and let the story carry you away. Pay attention to the details that especially speak to you and let them be your way into the story and the lesson that it holds for you at this time. Coyote and the Shadow People A Nez Pierce story recorded by Archie Finney in 1929. Coyote and his wife were dwelling there. His wife became ill. She died. Then Coyote became very, very lonely. He did nothing but weep for this wife. There the death spirit came to him and said, Coyote, do you pine for your wife? Yes, friend, I long for her most painfully, replied Coyote. I could take you to the place where your wife has gone, but I tell you, you must do everything just exactly as I say, said the death spirit. Not once are you to disregard my commands, and do something else. Oh, yes, replied Coyote. Yes, friend. And what could I do? I will do everything you say. There the ghost told him, Yes, well, now let us go. Coyote added, 
Yes, let it be so that we are going. They went. There, the ghost said to Coyote again, You must do whatever I say. Do not disobey. Yes, yes, friend, said Coyote. I have been pining so deeply, and why should I not heed you? Coyote could not see the spirit clearly. He appeared to be only a shadow. They started and went along over a plain. Oh, there are many horses. It looks like a roundup, exclaimed the ghost. Yes, replied Coyote, though he really saw none. Yes, there are many horses. They had arrived now near the place of the dead. The ghost knew that Coyote could see nothing, but he said, Oh, look, such quantities of service berries. Let us pick some to eat. Now when you see me reach up, you too will reach up. And I, when I bend the limb down, you too will pull your hands down. Yes, Coyote said to him, so be it that thus I will do. The ghost reached up and bent the branch down, and Coyote did the same. Although he could see no berries, he imitated the ghost in putting his hand to and from his mouth in the manner of eating. Thus they picked and ate berries. Coyote watched him carefully and imitated every action. When the ghost would put his hand into his mouth, Coyote did the same. Such good service berries these are, commented the ghost. Yes, friend, it is good that we have found them, agreed Coyote. Now let us go. And they went on. We are about to arrive, the ghost told him. There is a long, very, very long lodge. Your wife is there somewhere. Just wait and let me ask someone. In a little while, the ghost returned and said to Coyote, Yes, they have told me where your wife is. We are coming to a door through which we will enter. You will do in every way exactly what you see me do. I will take hold of the door flap, raise it up, and bending low, will enter. Then you too will take hold of the door flap and do the same. They proceeded in this manner now to enter. It happened that Coyote's wife was sitting near the entrance. The ghost said to Coyote, Sit here beside your wife. They both sat. The ghost added, Your wife is going now to prepare food for us. Coyote could see nothing, except that he was sitting there on an open prairie where nothing was in sight. Yet he could feel the presence of the shadow. Now she has prepared our food, said the ghost. Let us eat. The ghost reached down and then brought his hand to his mouth. Coyote could see nothing but the prairie dust. They ate. Coyote imitated all the movements of his companion. When they had finished, and the woman had apparently put the food away, the ghost said to Coyote, You stay here. I must go around to see some people. He went out, but he returned soon. Here we have conditions from those different than you have in the land of the living. When it gets dark here, it has dawned in your land, 
and when it dawns for us, it is growing dark for you. And now it began to grow dark, and Coyote seemed to hear people whispering, talking in faint tones all around him. Then darkness set in. Oh, now Coyote saw many fires in a long house. He saw that he was in a very, very large lodge, and there were many fires burning. He saw the various people. They seemed to have shadow-like forms, but he was able to recognize different people. He saw his wife sitting by his side. He was overjoyed, and he joyfully greeted all of his old friends who had died long ago. How happy he was! He would march down the aisle between the fires, going here and there, and talk with the people. He did this throughout the night. Now he could see the doorway through which his friend and he had entered. At last it began to dawn, and his friend came to him and said, Coyote, our night is falling, and in a little while you will not see us. But you must stay right here. Do not go anywhere at all. Stay right here, and then in the evening you will see all these people again. Yes, friend, said Coyote. Where can I possibly go? I will spend the day here. The dawn came, and Coyote found himself alone, sitting there in the middle of the prairie. He spent the day there, just dying from the heat, parching from the heat, thirsting from the heat. Coyote stayed here several days. He would suffer through the day, but always at night, he would make merry in the great lodge. One day, his ghost friend came to him and said, Tomorrow you will go home. You will take your wife with you. Yes, friend, said Coyote, but I like it here so much. I am having a good time, and I should like to remain here. Yes, the ghost replied, nevertheless, you will go tomorrow and you must guard against your inclination to do foolish things. Do not yield to any queer notions. I will advise you now what you are to do. There are five mountains. You will travel for five days. Your wife will be with you, but you must never, never touch her. Do not let any strange impulse possess you. You may talk to her, but never touch her. Only after you have crossed and descended from the fifth mountain, then you may do whatever you like. Yes, friend, replied Coyote. When dawn came again, Coyote and his wife started. At first it seemed to him as if he was going alone, yet he was dimly aware of his wife's presence as she walked along behind him. They crossed one mountain, and now Coyote could feel more definitely the presence of his wife, like a shadow, she seemed. They went on and crossed the second mountain. They camped at night at the foot of each mountain. They had a little conical lodge which they would set up each time. Coyote's wife would sit on one side of the fire and he on the other. Each night her form appeared clearer and clearer. The death spirit who had sent them now began to count the days and to figure the distance Coyote and his wife had covered. 
I hope he will do everything right and take this wife through to the world beyond, he kept saying to himself. Then Coyote and his wife were spending their last night, their fourth camping, whence, on the morrow, she would again assume fully the character of a living person. They were camping for the last time, and Coyote could see her very clearly, as if she were a real person who sat opposite him. He could see her face and body very clearly, but he only looked and dared not touch her. But suddenly, a joyous impulse seized him. The joy of having his wife again overwhelmed him. He jumped to his feet and rushed over to embrace her. His wife cried out, Stop! 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 Coyote! Do not touch me! Stop! Her warning had no effect. Coyote rushed over to his wife, and just as he touched her body, she vanished. She disappeared returned to the shadow land. When the death spirit learned of Coyote's folly, he became deeply angry. You inveterate doer of this kind of thing, I told you not to do anything foolish. You, Coyote, were about to establish the practice of returning from death. Only a short time away the human people are coming, but you have spoiled everything and established for them death as it is. Here Coyote wept and wept. He decided, tomorrow I shall return to see them again. He started back the following morning, and as he went along he began to recognize the places where his spirit friend and he had passed before. He found the place where the ghost had seen the herd of horses, and now he began to do the same things they had done on their way to the shadow land. Oh, look at the horses, he said. It looks like a roundup. He went on until he came to the place where the ghost had found the service berries and stopped to bend the branches and eat some. He went on and finally came to the place where the long lodge had stood. He said to himself, Now when I take hold of this door flap and raise it up, you must do the same. Coyote remembered all the little things his friend had done. He saw the spot where he had sat before. He went there, sat down, and said, Now your wife has brought us food. Let us eat. He went through the motions of eating again. Darkness fell, and now Coyote listened for the voices. And he looked all around. He looked here and there, but nothing appeared. Coyote sat there in the middle of the prairie. He sat there all night, but the lodge didn't appear again, nor did the ghost ever return to him. Oh, poor Coyote. My heart goes out to him. And maybe this story reminds you of another story of a grieving husband who journeys to the land of the dead with the hope of retrieving his beloved wife the Greek myth of Orpheus. If you're not familiar with that story, or if you are and you love it, you can find it in the Myth in the Mojave Archives, by the way. Like the myth of Orpheus, in this story, don't you find yourself rooting for Coyote and hoping for success? 
Although we know that death is inevitable, stories like this one speak to our longing for life, a life unmarred by this loss. Now there's a difference, important difference, I think, between Orpheus's challenge and the challenge posed to Coyote. Orpheus is told that he cannot turn around and look at his wife. And as we've heard, Coyote can see his wife, but he is told that he cannot touch her. In this, I see Orpheus's story as being a story about doubt. About doubt. He wonders, can he trust Hades, the king of the underworld, to bend the rules of the underworld for him? Maybe he has doubt about his wife, or even just doubt that someone, something that he's never seen, coming up from a land that he cannot understand and has certainly never visited before, may have suffered some hardship along the way without him knowing it. Doubt. Doubt seizes Orpheus, and he has to turn around and look at the last minute. Coyote is moved by joy. Coyote is moved by a joy that he cannot contain in the final moment when it seems that he will be reunited with his wife. For me, Coyote's story is a story about desire. Imagine, he's seeing her, and she's becoming more tangible every day. Can you imagine the temptation that that would pose. And it raises the question, given his great love and desire, if he could have behaved otherwise. Let's say he'd succeeded. Let's say he'd succeeded in reining himself in and keeping his self-control. What might that suggest about the depth of his feeling? As Gerald Ramsey suggests in his commentary on the story, The part of us that's the good citizen who obeys the rules laments that Coyote has once again screwed it up. But is that good citizen the passionate lover and spouse who would undertake such a journey? Is that the part of us that would go to the underworld? That good citizen would have been reconciled to the death in the first place. There's a real beauty and power in such foolishness, in that foolish passion, in that desperate attempt to turn around something as powerful as death. And yet, people die. And we cannot bring them back because we human beings belong to the present moment. Like flowers, we are not meant to last. Such is mortality. I happen to be in the Pacific Northwest right now, near the land, the ancestral lands of the Nez Perce, and home of many trickster stories. So I I had the notion of, of telling you some trickster, new trickster tales while I was up here. But this story has really been calling out to me. It presented itself to my imagination very forcefully. And so this had me wondering, why? I want to share 
my way into this story with you right now and the connection that I'm making. And it begins with the image of the shadow and the sense, my sense, of the relative sterility of the death lodge in the death land, in the shadow land. I'm reminded that for the Nez Pierce and for Native Americans generally and many other cultures around this precious planet, that for them, life itself is precious. And life on this planet, in a body, is sweet. What follows, what's imagined after death, is not unpleasant. There's not punishment. But it's a pale version of what we enjoy here. In our breathing, sensing bodies, eating, smelling, touching, making love, even suffering from arthritis (laughs) and slowing down. In bodies in a world of dappled light and cool breezes and oceans and fish and flowers moving among our fellow creatures of all types. This understanding, this view of life, is in stark contrast to the Christian view that dominates Western culture. In that view, our earthly home, this place, this time, is a fallen place of suffering and exile, a place where we don't belong even. And it's thought that we return to our true home when we die, to heaven and a life of bliss with God. No doubt this disregard for the gift of earthly life today, here and now, underlies the deep disconnections that threaten our very survival. It's a huge problem. And yes, each of us is small. And yet, it is through our actions, the things that we can do every day, that connect us to a deeper appreciation for the beauty, that enable us to cultivate our love and appreciation for life, for body, and what we call the natural world. It's in that process that we can transform our culture. So how can you? How can you do this? Take a deep breath. Pet your cat or put your hand on the trunk of a tree with a note of conscious gratitude in your heart. Say a prayer over your meal and eat it slowly. Dance in your living room. Water a plant. Look into the eyes of the person who hands you your cup of coffee. What might happen if each of us spent a few conscious moments every day engaging all of our senses, savoring the richness of our capacities, celebrating the body, and feeling the truth of our kinship with all that is? What might happen? This is a response to the call for a new way and a new story, one that is in service to and celebrates life. I find myself once again turning to poetry in an attempt to express the feelings and the connections that are communicated to me in this story. And I want to share a poem with you called In Blackwater Woods by Mary Oliver. Look, the trees are turning their own bodies into pillars of light, 
are giving off the rich fragrance of cinnamon and fulfillment. The long tapers of cattails are bursting and floating away over the blue shoulders of the ponds. And every pond, no matter what its name is, is nameless now. Every year, everything I have ever learned in my lifetime leads back to this. The fires and the black river of loss, whose other side is salvation, whose meaning none of us will ever know. To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones knowing your own life depends on it. And when the time comes, to let it go, to let it go. That's it for me, Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you're new to Myth in the Mojave, I invite you to go to the Myth in the Mojave website or the Facebook page and subscribe to the email announcements so that you receive a regular little blurb every time I release a new episode. And if you're finding something of value of Myth in the Mojave, please join the community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs that are archived there, as well as free downloads of everything new that I create. You also play an essential role in providing the financial support that makes future programs possible. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.